Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Julia Field tōku ingoa. My name's Julia Field and I'm a counsellor working in a large secondary school. This is the second of two podcasts introducing the subject of eating disorders and I'll be asking Heidi some questions that have been asked regarding current best practice in treating eating disorders, including how we in our profession can tōtoko and support this. Kia ora, Julia. Tēnā koutou to all our listeners. Ko Heidi Brace toko ingoa. My name's Heidi Brace. I'm an adolescent family therapist with the South Island Eating Disorders Service here in Christchurch and have been with the team yeah, probably over 15 years now and am also a registered social worker. Cool. So Heidi, we have a young person at our school with a diagnosis of anorexia. Their parents have let us know at school that they're now under the care of Princess Margaret Hospital and they're going to be doing Maudsley. Can you describe what this is and what it's likely to entail? Certainly. Maudsley family-based treatment, also known as Maudsley Family Therapy, is a treatment that was developed in the UK at the Maudsley Hospital back in the 1980s by Ivan Eisler and some of his colleagues. It was later manualized by James Locke and Danny LaGrange, and that's been then gone on to be researched extensively. And it's now recognized as around the world as really the only evidence-based treatment for this population, particularly anorexia in adolescents. Here at the South Island Eating Disorder Service in Christchurch, we've been delivering this treatment on site for over 20 years. And it's an outpatient treatment involving a whole multidisciplinary team. The premise of Maudsley Family Therapy is that families have the skills and the ability to get their child or young person well. They have the most vested interest and knowledge about their young person. And the young person is seen as too unwell themselves, not thinking clearly, too wrapped up in their eating disorder to do this for themselves. So there's three phases to the treatment. Phase one is the weight restoration phase. Parents are asked to make all decisions about what the young person eats, anything to do with food or exercise, and to eat with them at as many meals or snacks as possible. Parents are supported to take an empathetic but firm approach in order to establish regular weight gain. If the young person is medically unwell or medically compromised, we'll recommend perhaps two weeks off of school at, at the start and bed rest or staying quiet, and we can provide a medical certificate if necessary around that. The goal in phase one is for the young person to gain between 0.5 and 1.5, half, half a kilogram to 1.5 kilograms every single week. Once the young person is physically stable, kind of how the parents do this is really up to them. We might have conversations about the pros and cons of, say, PE at school and whether to participate um, in sport. And they'll know the weight gain requirements involved and that if if the young person is more active, they're going to have to eat more food. And sometimes that If the young person is involved in sport and and is motivated to get back to their sport, that can be a motivating factor. They'll they'll have to eat more to keep gaining and participate in sport. For others, it's too hard to increase food that much, and so the parents might choose to actually pull them out of PE and pull them out of sport 
until they're in their healthy weight range. Families, we notice working in schools with young people and their whanau, family structures and the way they do things are so, so different. How how do you navigate that with the differences you notice in, in whanau? Yeah, that, that's really the beauty of this treatment is that you can tailor it to each family that you meet with. It's a collaborative approach is taken, you know, and as, as I mentioned, they know the young person, we know eating disorders. So we work together as a team. Um, we can adjust the treatment to accommodate separated families or single parent families or families from other cultures. You know, f- food is important in a wide range of cultures and this can be to our advantage. You know, I was remembering the other day about uh, Hui that I went to for Pekanga Arafai and I was describing the Maudsley approach. And one of the Pekanga Arafai spoke up and said she remembered when she was young a, a cousin or somebody that had an e- eating issue and the whole whanau wrapped around and, and kind of supported that person to eat better and to get well. And I said, that's it. That's that's the Maudsley approach. And so it, it very much was an, aligned with that culture. However, unfortunately, there can be family cultural norms that aren't so helpful. So for some families, they, you know, one of the parents has been dieting or one's exercising excessively. Um, sometimes they're into clean eating or, or healthy eating and they don't actually realize that the young person has different need, nutritional needs to, them, to, to adults. And, you know, kids take on board messages that are meant for adults about, you know, trying to maintain weight or eating not, you know, unhealthy foods. And, and so we hope in those cases that the parents can take on board some psychoeducation. We give them around that and, and adjust really their, their family culture to meet the needs of their unwell child. We might have other discussions around other family things and, and things like life balance and, you know, reducing stress levels. And, you know, if, if parents do decide to take the young person out of PE, we'll ask them to communicate that to the school. And then once the young person is in their healthy weight range, and that can take anywhere from 12 weeks to sometimes five or six months, really, depending on how much they have to gain, it's hoped that they're thinking more clearly and they're starting to feel the, the positive effects of weight gain. They're, you know, they have more energy, they, they can study better, um, they're less obsessive in their thinking. And so if the eating disorder has faded back into the background and it's, it's not really evident anymore, we'll transition to phase two of the program. And that's where the control is had and handed back to the young person as age appropriate. How you do that, you know, for a 12-year-old is going to differ from a 16 or 17-year-old. A 12-year-old might start making their own lunch. A 16 and 17-year-old might start cooking one meal a, a week because you know, through phase one, we've asked them to stay out of the kitchen the whole time. So starting to normalize that again. Um, sometimes in phase two, some of the comorbidities that we've put aside, if there's still anxiety around or mood issues, they can come right with weight gain. But if they haven't, then maybe some individual work is done around that time and to address those issues. Um, different issues you know, can can be there for different kids that have perhaps um, triggered this eating disorder. And so, 
you know, we, we don't have time to go into all the details, you know, different for boys or for girls. There, there may be gender identity issues. There may be sexuality issues. And, you know, we, we just don't have time to go into all the details around that. Um, but, but that does get addressed on the way through treatment. If it's, if it's getting in the way of weight gain, we'll address it in phase one. But ideally, if it can wait till phase two, we address it then. Also in phase two, it's, it's kind of hard for parents to step back. You know, we've raised the intensity in phase one and said this is a really serious illness and they've been appropriately anxious. And then in phase two, we're saying, actually, you can relax now, step back. And, and they might need some coaching around that to trust their young person. The, the young person has trusted them and gained the weight as they should. So now we're saying to the parents, yeah, let, let's try it. You know, and, it, and it's a very case, you know, week by week kind of thing. If, if the young person doesn't get it, you know, and, they, and they're not maintaining their weight, we can always go back to phase one if needed, just, just for a little while. And then, and then when they're in their healthy range again, the, the young person can have another go. And then lastly, phase three. And that's really just getting the young person and the family kind of back on track developmentally. You know, this often happens just naturally. Um, in phase one, it's weekly sessions. In phase two, it's fortnightly sessions. And, and then in phase three, we're moving to monthly. So we're naturally withdrawing from treatment and they're gaining more and more confidence, hopefully, to, to just get on with life. And hopefully the young person now is getting back to kind of normal developmental tasks like getting the driver's license and um, socializing more. And, and normal family life cycles are, are starting to resume. So a version of this treatment is likely to be used in the treatment of any adolescent eating disorder, not just anorexia. You know, if it's bulimia or binge eating disorder, we'll, we'll use a form of Maudsley and just tailor it to the issue at hand and the, and the family that presents. But typically the treatment takes anywhere from, you know, the research shows on average 10 months, but can be longer, can be 12, even 14 months. And for others, they might whiz through quite quickly if they're motivated and and um, want to get back to life in, in six months. Yeah. Okay. So in the in the first podcast, Elaine certainly talked about how potentially serious an eating disorder can be. And you've been talking about Maudsley, which is an outpatient treatment, but in our school, we're aware of some young people who end up as inpatients. Does that mean that Maudsley family therapy hasn't worked? <laughs> no, not at all. You know, sometimes the eating disorder is just too strong. You know, I, we, Elaine would have highlighted that kind of, and on the, the links, so all the, it's a physical impact, psychological impacts, and physiological. So the, the brain is really affected. And, you know, the more unwell they are, the more irrational the thinking is. And you can't force feed someone. You know, some of these kids get, so scared that they don't even want to drink a glass of water because they're scared of the calorie, there might be calories in it. So when it gets to that stage, really, it's just that the eating disorder is too strong and the family needs more support. So an inpatient admission might be recommended, um, particularly as well if they've become medically compromised in that time. And, you know, this is to establish regular eating and get the weight gain going again. Our research shows that this is needed in about 30% of the time, which means 70% of the time it's not needed. So, so by and large, most families don't need an inpatient admission. Um, 
if it is needed, then the parents are coached. You know, they'll, they'll come on to the ward and have meals and snacks on the ward with their young person and then start to have leave and practice meal support on leave. And the aim is really to increase their confidence and ability to stand up to anorexia, you know, anywhere, anytime. And we do try and keep admissions short, as short as possible. There's lots of reasons for this, but the main one really is the evidence shows that young people can only get well in the outpatient setting. You know, we, um, we, we will recommence Maudsley Family Therapy Phase 1 once they're discharged. And so for us as counsellors, we're part of that community around a young person in that outpatient setting. Um, so let's say that we already know the young person um, as a counsellor. What might our role be during each of those three phases of treatment? This is very much on a case-by-case basis, Julia. If someone is seeing a counsellor before we pick them up, it's most likely that their involvement will be put on hold in phase one of treatment. Now, there's several reasons for this, and it's, it's nothing to do with the counsellor's lack of knowledge or skill, because we, we know counsellors are, are really skilled in this, in, in supporting young people. But the thing is that young people, as I mentioned, are often not thinking rationally. You know, their head is full of eating disorder cognitions, their fear of weight gain is really strong, and so any talking therapy is really just talking to the eating disorder. And that's irrational and it, and it just becomes frustrating. So often we're, we're asking counselors to step back for a bit. Another reason is that eating disorders are quite good at splitting. You know, they, you know, with parents, they'll try and split parents and pull one to one side and, and they can be quite tricky. You know, kids that are normally good kids, compliant kids, you know, they're high achieving kids often, they become this different being, you know, they're, they can be quite deceptive and lying and even, you know, quite manip- manipulative, which is quite unlike them normally. Um, but this is all due to their strong eating sort of cognitions and, and fear of weight gain. So keeping the treatment team tight is, is important. And we want the parents to be the ones that that support the young person both physically and emotionally. You know that that uh, we will coach them in that. Um, once once they've reached phase two, if the young person would like to re-engage in counseling, we'd ask that the counselor is put on the disclosure form, and we'd have an open conversation with the counselor about what this would look like. You know what the counselor's role is, and and it would include things like confidentiality and what areas need to be openly discussed going forward and, and what the counselor's role would be. Having said all that, there may be cases where the counselor can remain involved all the way through treatment. Um, again, the counselor will be put on the disclosure form and there would be discussion around that and looking at treatment goals and what specific topics the counselor might address, like peer issues. but but really staying away from the food and weight issues. It's, we talk about sometimes having a, a sibling role, if a sibling, sibling, being a sibling substitute you know, for single um, child families. So when we're working with a family with siblings, we, we'll talk to the siblings about their role. But if it's a, a one, pa- one child only family, it's like they don't have that sibling. So sometimes the, the counselor could be kind of have that role Another area that may be a little controversial, Julia, is the, is the 
um, meal support. Now, I know it's different in every school, how whether counsellors are able to do meal support, but, you know, this is a hugely stressful time for families and they're trying to hold down jobs, often both of them working, and they're supposed to be kind of at every meal and snack if possible. So, of course, that morning tea and lunch is hard to cover. And in some cases, if the, if the counsellor is willing, it's, it's a great thing to do. Um, they don't have to be the food police, though. It just involves eating together, you know. And, and I remember when I first started with the, the team years ago and did meal support on the ward, and it, it feels odd at first, but pretty, pretty quickly you realize it's really just about role modeling normal eating. You have distracting conversation during the meal. You might, you know, if the young person's struggling, you might prompt them a little bit, just calmly encouraging them to keep going or take one more bite. But it's certainly not the counselor's job to make them eat. You know, the time is strictly adhered to, so half an hour, say, for lunch. If the young person can't finish, it's no one's fault. You know, that gets fed back to the team. And the bigger picture is that there'll be perhaps lack of weight gain that week and natural consequences will prevail and whatever the parents and, and the treatment team had just, you know, agreed to. Some counselors might worry that meal spite, the meal support might interfere with their relationship and their rapport with the young person. But the reality is it'll impact on your relationship with anorexia, but enhance your relationship with your young person. You know, you get to see firsthand how anorexia haunts them or harasses them. It gives you that empathy and understanding that you might not have had before. And really, by recognizing anorexia and standing up to it, you're showing the young person that you have zero tolerance for anorexia and they can too. Yeah, you would have noticed I'm, I'm talking about the eating disorder as something separate to the young person. That's, and most counselors will be familiar with the term externalization. So that's very much a, a technique that's used in Maudsley. That's a narrative therapy technique and the, the Maudsley approach uses lots of different family therapy techniques. And you know we actually encourage the young person to give it a name. You know, it might be Ed or Anna or, or you know, different, different um, usually negative names. Um, and so if they're seeing the counselor, we'll share that with the counselor and encourage that as well. I guess lastly, and, and hearing Elaine's podcast, hopefully you've, you've got a real understanding of the physical, psychological and physiological impacts of eating disorders. And, and really understanding that if you're working with a young person is, is crucial. Um, there'll be other links on our, our you know, the, the Leading Lights website, as you said. One I'm thinking of is CCI website, Center for Clinical Interventions, you know, and that's just got really handy single page information sheets and, and counselors can look at that together with the young person. It's a good resource. So I guess overall, the most important thing really is that the Maudsley therapist and the counselor continue to have open communication regularly if the counselor is going to be involved, really to prevent that splitting and to exchange ideas and to even share progress and any change to treatment goals as on the way through as things evolve. Sure. Okay. So I'm, I'm thinking, Heidi, about what it would look like for me as a counselor if I've been working with a young person on the other side of their treatment and perhaps I'm noticing um, some indications through what they're saying or disclosing to me around them slipping into some of the old ways of thinking, some of the old behaviours. How would I perhaps navigate that? Yeah, that's a good question. 
you know, we do relapse prevention when we finish at the end of treatment. And, you know, sometimes the there's no handover to a counselor because the young person just wants to get on with their life. So much was put on hold during treatment. And we applaud that. You know, we want them to feel normal, to re-engage in life, and albeit perhaps with a more balanced approach and some knowledge of how to relax and self-care. So we'll do a, a really thorough relapse prevention plan with the family on our last session. And this includes signs of becoming unwell. And and if if there are signs of relapse, hopefully the, the parents will pick up on that in the first instance. But if teachers or deans or friends pick up on that first, I guess in some ways it's going back to Elaine's podcast in, in the sense of what to do when you're worried about somebody, you know, and, and, and probably following those steps in the first instance. And the other scenario where there's actually been a handover at the end of treatment to the counselor and that that um, and they were probably part of the discharge plan and hopefully they got the relapse prevention plan themselves at the end of treatment, they can use that to go back with the young person and say, hmm, do you know, do you think there's a few signs here of things going amiss again? And, you know, that you can um, review that with the young person and, and probably give the young person some a chance to turn it around. You know, even at the last session, we, we look at the difference between lapse and relapse. And sometimes there's just some stressors going on and little things slip in. And once the counselor highlights that and it, it's put on the table, the young person doesn't want to go backwards. And so they can turn it around themselves. But I guess the counselor has to be really clear, though, that if the young person can't do it, there's a there's a pretty tight time frame. They give it two, three, maybe four weeks, but if it hasn't turned around, they'll contact the family and just say, um, have they seen any concerns? And that needs to be really clear that there's, confidentiality has its limits. You know, as, as we've talked about and Lane talked about, young, young people can fall off the cliff very quickly. So there needs to be that understanding that the family will be, needs to know. And, you know, sometimes the young person doesn't understand why they've relapsed, but once the family has been contacted, they're, they're relieved. Mm. Okay. So along with families and whanau and the counsellor, there are other people within the school community. I'm, I'm thinking about deans and staff such as PE and health staff, but also other academic and support staff. How can those within that school community also support this process towards wellness for the young person. Mm, yeah, I, I guess I've, I've touched on the whole idea of reducing stressors, right? This is a pretty intense treatment. Um, and so trying to pull back, um, the, you know, these kids are, are pretty often high achievers, self-driven. Parents are often saying, we never pushed him or, you know, she, she, we've told her she's doing enough already. But they actually, we support parents to step in and, and take control and actually reduce their commitments. And nine times out of 10, the young person is relieved about that. You know, they're being given permission to slow down. It, it kind of reminds me of lockdown, you know, with the COVID lockdown and, and how many people were just relieved to just stop. And and so, it, so I think in a similar way that Parents role modeling a balanced lifestyle, self-care, it's okay to blob out and relax. Um, but also we that whole idea of, of prioritizing treatment. So school's got to come second, and that's that's hard for, for teachers probably, some some staff that are 
are pushing kids to get NCA, you know, marks or get into a certain university and get certain. And, and the thing is, this, this is a physical health issue that has to be addressed quickly and effectively. And if we can help them to step back in other areas of their life, prioritize this treatment, they can do those things later. You know, they can take extra courses. They, you know, if they've been a, an avid sports person and they were really keen, it's like, well, next year, put, put it off till next. This year is about getting well. And really that, that's just prioritizing that. And I guess what else, what else can school, schools do? I, <laughs> an important one that comes to mind is, is really establishing and sporting regular eating, you know, and, and I guess if I had a dollar for every time that a young person said, I don't have time for lunch, you know, I've got meetings or I've got to go band practice. And, and actually schools have the power to say, no, there's no meetings that will occur in the first 20 minutes of lunchtime or, or half an hour, better yet. You know, these kids ha have a lot to actually eat um, quantity wise because they're both trying to weight gain and grow, you know, often the, the young adolescents are, and so it's, it's a lot of nutritional needs there. And so, so allowing that half an hour for lunch. Um, additionally, they, they really need food from all the food groups, you know, and, and, and in some ways role modeling that, you know, when I was talking about meal support for counselors or, but other staff members, it's, it's okay to have a couple of biscuits at lunchtime, you know, and in fact, the kids need that. They need in fact, six to eight carbohydrates a day, you know, and one at every meal and snack. They need all the food groups, you know, salts and sugars and, and fats and oils. And, and really it's back to that old adage of everything in moderation, right? And, and staff knowing that and supporting that, role modeling that. And lastly, I guess it's kind of the hardest is, the, you know, your own personal work around size acceptance. You know, there's a wide range of sizes and shapes out there and, and if staff members, you know, are in that higher BMI range, you know, there's, it, there's a natural bell curve, BMIs from 20 to 25, and some people and some kids are going to have to sit higher, BMI 24, 25. And so really role modeling that size acceptance approach um, and helping young people, there's more, you know, value other things in life. There's more important things in life. So... I guess in the end, it's kind of walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Thank you so much, Heidi. You've given us a really helpful window into the, the process and the phases and the efficacy of Maudsley Family Therapy. It's been really helpful to think about how we as counsellors working in schools may be able to support this kaupapa during and subsequent to a young person in their whanau's involvement. And a reminder to those listening, that all the references that Heidi's referred to can be located on the Leading Lights website. The first of these two podcasts focused on how we as counsellors working in a school environment can respond appropriately to concerns expressed around a young person and their relationship with food. Ngā mihi koutou.